0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 17 this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked in chapter 16 at two very gracious provisions that God gave to His people in the midst of the wilderness. One was manna, and then the other was a weekly rest from all of their work. These are extraordinary on the face of the earth. No nation had ever been given by their God an opportunity to rest If you missed any of those sermons, uh, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to them because context is always king. It's helpful to to know how the Scriptures flow together, and if you miss a week, you miss something of God's gracious provision to His people. So when we turn to chapter 17 this morning, we're going to look again at another mercy and grace given Uh, to grumblers, again, who are really quite deserving of God's wrath, much like you and me. So we go to chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Here's God's word All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called, he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's Word. Let's pray for the ministry of His Spirit and His help. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would bring forth Your Spirit and accompany the preaching of Your Word. Would You give Your people the ears to hear what You would say to them? We ask, Father, that You would again be willing to to wield in your hand the the likes of me, an ordinary sinful crooked stick. Would you please show to your people the narrow way to Christ Jesus and give us great comfort from your word. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. People of Israel are walking through a wilderness. It's It's a desert where resources are scarce. Uh, They're being pressed by circumstances beyond their control, and all the while, you know, don't you, the temperature just keeps heating up. And so in the wilderness, the people begin to feel a measure of anger toward Moses and also toward God. Philip Riken summarizes their concerns under three Ps. Uh, God, are you going to provide for me? God, are you going to protect me? God, are you present with me here in the wilderness or not? I suspect nobody in this room has ever marched through the desert in the Sinai Peninsula. Nobody's ever tried to navigate a desert, hopefully. But you have walked, haven't you, through a kind of wilderness. You've experienced moments where your resources become scarce. Circumstances begin to press you in ways that are beyond your control. And all the time, the temperature just seems to heat up. I wonder if you're like me, pitiful. You begin to question the Lord in those moments. God, are you going to provide for me? God, are you going to protect me? God, where are you? Are you with me or not? Maybe the refrigerator goes out on Tuesday at the same time that your garbage disposal backs up and your car breaks down all in one week. God, are you going to provide for me? that's normal life, isn't it? Or you move to a new place, you start a new school or a new job, you don't have a job perhaps, or that relationship that has anchored you for so long is now uncertain and it's gone, and you say, God, I don't know what's coming. How are you going to protect me? Or maybe you begin to notice that finances are tight, and all your circumstances begin to press in you. And somewhere deep down, you say, God, I, I really think you're responsible for this. You want to bring a trial on me, but I, I want to really put you on trial here. Because you're God. And I'm not. And yet, you have brought me to the wilderness. And if you are going to bring me to the wilderness, Lord... I demand that you be prepared to provide for me. I demand that you would protect me. I demand that you would show yourself present. And you feel justified in your demand, don't you? So do I. I feel justified to offer complaints. I feel justified to make the almighty God of heaven stand on trial over how he's running things in my life. It's a common thought. It's an irrational thought, common but irrational. The text before us is nothing short of humbling, really, because here it teaches us that as you test the Lord, He finds you lacking and proves Himself faithful. And so in the passage before us, I want to show you this morning the lawsuit, the lynch mob, and the lesson. We'll start with the the lawsuit. As in chapter 15, it is thirst again that's the cause of their unbelief. Verse 1 tells us that God caused the people to move on from the wilderness of sin by stages so that he moved them along in various groups, not the whole group at once. And he brought them to a place called Rephidim. And it seems sort of ironic because they come to Rephidim, which means resting place. And it's a little challenging to rest when you're thirsty and there is no water. And as a reader, you begin to scratch your head. And you say, well, if God is their guide and he brings them to a place of rest, why does he do it this way? So that they can't even actually rest. And the narrator tells the story in such a masterful way that before you get the answer to the question that we would obviously be asking, you are confronted with the way the people of Israel interpreted it, and in other words, their assessment of the situation the first thing you see is the rage of the people. And here is their complaint. God is not in the picture. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And so the word translated quarrel is actually, uh, um, you would transliterate it like R-I-B, but it's pronounced Riv. It's where that, that term "miriba" comes from. And it means to find fault with. Usually in the Old Testament Scriptures, it has the connotations of a a legal dispute. And in a very real sense, what's happening is the people of Israel have filed a lawsuit. Though he doesn't say it here. I'll show you in just a moment. That's precisely the way God takes it. And at first blush, it seems like they're pointing at Moses. Moses is the problem. Moses, you are our mediator. You are our leader. Give us water to drink to quench our thirst. But he can't do it. He has nothing. He can't give them what they want, even if they demand it. But what he does do so perfectly is he clarifies the object of their dispute. Look at the second half of verse 2. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so Moses puts his finger on precisely what's happening. Why do you bring Yahweh to court? Uh, we've heard the word test before. In this book, we've heard the word test quite a bit. The bitter waters of Marah, back in chapter 15, verse 25, it says, the, the Lord tested the people. The manna in Exodus sixteen four, God rains down bread in a daily portion to test them. To see if they will walk in his way or not. To see if they'll just believe him. Let's be clear. Yahweh has rescued them. He has saved them. He's adopting them. He's on a mission to sanctify them. Much like he is with you. He intends to teach them what it means to live as free people. To live as he created them to live. And they would put him to the test on the other hand you wonder don't you why do these people not get it they just gathered a a fresh batch of manna this morning it's just another test God does this kind of thing with us he wants us to pray father thank you for providing for us this morning would you please supply the water that we need we trust you You've proven yourself to be good in the past. Why don't they do that? On the other hand, you know precisely why they don't do that. In fact, you can relate to their sentiment yourself. And it is that their hearts are hard like mine was this week and like yours has been this week too. How would it alter your perspective to be reminded that life for the Christian is really a walk through the wilderness. It's a journey into places where the Lord would test you and and summon you to learn to believe him. How would that flip the narrative on what you're doing in your own mind? In fact, the entire 40-year journey is going to be a series of tests. God saying, please come to know me as the Father who lives in heaven. I'm testing you so that you will Learn to know that I am a God worthy of your trust. God's tests are not like the tests in your school. They're not meant simply to make you fail. They're not simply meant to leave you with a sense of hopelessness. But rather to move you forward in faith. To say, this is a God who's good. And even when I can't understand what he's doing, I still believe him. If you're like me, you turn the tables on the Lord. Twice in this passage, it says the people tested the Lord. It's verse 2 and it's verse 7. They turn the tables on him. Why? Because you know their feelings. The the, the sense of of frustration and suffering is very intense. The fear of loss is extraordinary. And Moses says, why do you test the Lord? Look at verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Scholars who study the Old Testament will, will talk about this phrase they'll, they'll say, covenant lawsuit. And, and what they mean in that phrase is later on it's used in the prophets that God brings a charge against his people and, and, he, and he's saying to them, you are being unfaithful to our covenant relationship. So God often later will file grievances against them. The prophet is summoning them to come back and to, to live inside that relationship because the people are obviously guilty. Guilty. But here is what happens. The people in this passage have filed a covenant lawsuit against Yahweh. They have brought the Lord to trial. What are the charges? Murder and fraud. Moses, Lord, you brought us here to kill us. The whole thing. The, the, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of our enemies, the waters at Mara, the manna, the Sabbath, it's all been a big ruse. You've brought us out here to kill us. I wonder if you are irrational with God like this. One remedy for our irrational thoughts in the moment is to stop. Stop. And begin to either write out or recite from your own mouth past evidence that has proven God's faithfulness to you already. But sometimes it's hard to pause. I'm so busy shaking my fist at the almighty God of heaven that I forget to pause and think. And so the whole thing is escalating. If you are like me, you do this. So what begins as a concern, God, are you going to provide for me? Are you going to protect me? Are you going to be present with me in this distress? Has now escalated to the charges of murder and fraud. Because you're thirsty. That's all it takes. I'm just thirsty. And so I have an intense feeling of panic. Think about your most recent frustration. Perhaps it happened this week. Did it cause for you a moment of panic? And there did you bring charges against God? I did this week in a really embarrassing way. Tuesday, one car is in the shop. Wednesday, two cars are in the shop. Wednesday night, the garbage disposal does, in fact, back up. Thursday, one car is still in the shop, and as I'm trying to write a sermon about God's care, I'm also wondering, God, do you care? One car is still in the shop as I speak today. I have no idea what the diagnosis is going to be, but you know, like I do, all I really am wondering is how much is it going to cost? What do you do? You bring a mental lawsuit against God. Isn't that silly? Cars aren't that big a deal. They just aren't. Has God proven himself faithful to me in the past? Of course he has. I'm not saying I'm justified. I'm saying sometimes that's the kind of stuff. That's all it really takes To send us into a silly lawsuit against the Lord. Faithless accusations against God's character. Do you ever want him to prove himself to you? As if he must? In the British judicial system, the dock is the place in the courtroom where the accused person must stand at his trial. After his death, many of his essays and speeches of C.S. Lewis were, were published together under the title, God in the Dock. And these essays are brought together under the observation that Lewis makes. Here it is. Ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, roles are reversed. He is judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, the judge is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Of course, he's making a broader point about the society of his day. But how many of us who, who cry out to God also emulate the pattern and repeat the very same sins which our forefathers in Israel did? We bring mental charges against God, spiritual charges against God, emotional lawsuits against the Lord for the way he runs the world. I wonder if you have ever indicted him on the charges of neglect or fraud or not being present to do what you wanted him to do. As you test the Lord, he finds you lacking and proves himself faithful. The lawsuit, let's look at the lynch mob. The story is told in such a way that you and I get to stand at a safe distance. And we watch over here as the crowd of thirsty grumblers becomes a mob in search of vigilante justice. And if you hear the charges As they are written, you begin to understand the intensity they've accused Moses and the Lord of attempted murder and fraud. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Scholars debate whether Moses should be viewed positively or negatively here. Is he complaining against God? Is he testing God in his words? I am not sure But I know that he does in this moment the thing that the people themselves will not do. That is, he cries out to the Lord. And when you and I are tested and tried, the one thing you can't do is stay in your own head. Continue there to indict God. It is always best to cry out to the Lord in prayer. Talk to him about the things that you do not understand, what you do not know. Because it is really hard, and God knows this. It is very difficult, even for hard-hearted people, to remain angry at the God with whom they are pleading for help. God knows also that prayer is in itself an, an exercise of faith. Prayer to the one that you are afraid has forgotten you. Now, Moses sees what's happening here, even if you and I don't see it. God, I've been accused of murder, and according to the testimony of these witnesses, however flawed they are, they have found me guilty, and they are about to kill me. Therefore, before they execute this twisted justice on me, which means at verse 4, the entire salvation story of Israel is at risk, there's a kind of crossroads. A complaint has been filed, and there are only two ways to handle the complaint. Option one, a lynch mob. Moses is put to death. The people move on without their mediator, and they move on without Yahweh. Option two, a trial. Even in the Old Testament law, A person is executed if they are found guilty, and it does require witnesses. And in the case of murder, execution is delivered by stoning. That's what Moses is aware of. Here's the legal implications, friends. The people of Israel have filed a complaint against God, and Moses is God's representative in the eyes of the people. He's the mediator between the former slaves and the God who supposedly freed them. And so the lynch mob says, for this act of attempted murder, justice demands that someone would be struck to death. It is impossible to overstate the intensity of the scene. It's impossible to overstate the tension that exists in the text because the mob demands justice and Moses says to the Lord, please don't let it be me. Let's step away from the lynch mob for just a second and think. Do they really want justice? After having delivered them from slavery and destroying their enemies and carrying them across the Red Sea and feeding them and giving them water and rest, does a charge against Yahweh even have a chance of sticking? On a scale of relational faithfulness, do idol-worshipping grumblers want to be measured against a God who delivered them from the rule of a tyrannical king? Now you consider the way your life is going. You consider the low-level matters that you would put God on trial for. It is helpful to ask the same question of ourselves. On a spiritual level. When I question God's goodness to me, do I actually want my goodness measured against His? When I question God's provision for me, do I really want my past record of how I have used His resources measured against His consistent, ongoing, permanent provision for my needs? Everything from air in my lungs to food in my stomach? And then could I even stand a second contrasting the difference between what God gives to me and what I provide to the all-sufficient God? Who's testing whom? Who's really on trial here? It's not the Lord, it's, it's the people of Israel. And that ought to be terrifying. When you bring charges against the Lord through your deep, grumbling places of your heart, who's testing whom? Who's really on trial? It's not the Lord. It's you. And that's terrifying. So it's either going to be a lynch mob on this day or it's going to be a trial. And God says, it's going to be a trial And justice will prevail. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I suspect things got very quiet very quickly. Here's what's happening. The elders of Israel are also the judges of Israel. These are the men that are going to testify to what is true and right. And the staff in Moses' hand, this is the implement that God has used to strike Egypt with judgment. This is the implement that struck the Nile River and turned it to blood, Exodus 7.22. This is the staff that was stretched over the canals in Exodus 8.5 and brought forth frogs This is the same staff that struck the dust of Egypt and brought forth gnats and on and on and on. They have witnessed that this implement, this staff is used for one purpose, to execute justice. The lynch mob has entered the courtroom of God. Whatever terror Moses felt, At the thought of being stoned to death, the terror is now aimed at God's people. And in that moment, I assure you, they have one conclusion to draw. Well, I think that's the end for us. That is precisely what they would see and understand. And here is where the account becomes more gracious and merciful than you'd ever expect. In fact, no one sees this coming except the Lord. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. Horeb. It's Mount Sinai. It's the place that God had first appeared to Moses to show his presence with Moses at the burning bush. And so immediately God answers with mercy the question of presence. Am I with you? Even when you're thirsty and you don't see me? Yeah, I'm right here. And I have now fulfilled a promise that I made a little over a year ago, Moses. Do you remember? Moses standing there a little anxious before a flaming bush questioning whether it's okay to go and talk to this mightiest king on the face of the earth named Pharaoh, questioning whether God is going to be with him. And in Exodus 3 verse 12, God says, Moses, I'll be with you and this will be a sign for you that I've sent you, that you will take my people out of Egypt. And when you do, you will come back to this mountain and you will hear, serve me on this mountain. God is clearly with them. But why does God say, I'm going to go stand on the rock and then you strike the rock? Because the people have brought charges against God. And God says, okay, we'll have a trial. And I'll use this trial to teach you about me. You've charged me with not being present. Here I am on a mountain to testify to my presence. I told you we'd be back here, and here we are. You've charged me with a lack of provision. Clearly, they've forgotten about the manna and the rest and the waters of Mara and Elim. Here's more water from a rock of all things. You've charged me with a failure to protect you. With your own words, you've escalated it to a charge of outright murder. Who's testing whom? Who's really on trial here? God's own people have falsely accused him, and they should rightly be charged for their sins in this moment, especially for their unbelief. And you and I do the exact same thing. Who among us should not be rightly charged for his own sins, especially the sin of unbelief? This is a good father. He wants his people to know him. Not only do we grumble against him as if he is not good, we put him to the test and we condemn his character in the courtroom of my personal feelings about life circumstances in any given moment. As if I am a member of the lynch mob at Horeb. God taught his people about the fullness of his character because the wilderness is the place where God's people learn to trust him. By mercy, God said, our relationship will not end today. By grace, God said, I will give you better than your sins deserve. I will pour out so much water on you That this desert place of death will become a spring of life by justice. God said, someone must suffer for these sins. Strike me with the rod of judgment so that my people will live. As you test the Lord, he finds you lacking and he proves himself faithful. The lawsuit, the lynch mob, we close with the lesson. It's verse 7. Moses called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, Just a quick note for your own understanding. In the Old Testament, when a name is given to a place, it's often useful to help us understand the biblical lesson that's being made. And so that is Rephidim, which means resting place, will now be called test and quarrel. Because on that spot, they had doubts about whether Yahweh loves them or not. And all the certainty that they had seen about his power to save them, and all their accusations, that he is not with us in the wilderness they are all answered because the rock was struck and poured forth living water they were saved by a rock you are saved by the same rock paul explains it 1 corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock is christ and, you know, I might sit here and go, wow, that's so cool that Paul could figure out in the wilderness that that rock was Jesus. How does Paul do stuff like that? Well, he does it because the Old Testament tells us the same thing. It's, it's laid out in both the Old Testament and the New. Psalm 78 said that God really was angry with them on that day, that they really did deserve judgment, but he absorbed the blow himself. Psalm 95 testifies that the rock in the wilderness that should have been a rock of judgment was turned into a rock of salvation. Isaiah 53 foretold that the rock of salvation would be struck for our transgressions. It would be pierced for our iniquities. They quarreled and tested God over the issue. Is God with us or not? And then in the fullness of time, God answered them. You call my Messiah Emmanuel, which means God with us. John is very careful on the cross, chapter 19, verse 34, to make sure that you know that one of the soldiers pierced the side of our Lord with a spear. And once that side was pierced, blood and water came forth. And then John says, this is happening so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The lesson? God knew what he was doing all along. And he was with them every step of the way. I do not know what wilderness you face today. I do know that the wilderness is always scary for all of us. But you notice in a passage like this, don't you, that the wilderness is God's domain. He put a rock in that wilderness to remind you that you are never alone in the wilderness. So Jesus came into our midst not to judge us for our unbelief, but to be judged while we were still in unbelief so that you and I might come to saving faith. Friends, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be spared eternal judgment. Friends, come, you thirsty grumblers. Come and look upon the waters which flow from the side of Christ who is himself the solid rock and drink from him there that your soul may be deeply and fully satisfied. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. It is woven so beautifully and so full. We pray that as we have seen the rock in the wilderness, we might know for certain that that same rock, with all of its benefits, is now known more fully and completely in Christ. Teach your people to find shelter in the rock.